0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Now It's Dark movie podcast. I am one of your two hosts, I suppose, Mike. And this is Tim. And Tim, how's it going today, man?
1: It's going pretty well. I uh, I feel like I say that in every episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's
0: because I ask it every episode, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. don't know what else to say. Well, I mean, um, it,
1: it's been a busy, uh, busy couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, shot a music video fairly recently, which... Mm-hmm. We're still kind of in the process of, of finalizing shooting some insert shots and then it will be on to editing. Nice. So, it's nice to be making movies as well as talking about them.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, today we're going we've got a doozy. Oh, we for everybody. do. Everybody. That's right. We're going to be going into Joker, um what it's about, why it's successful, and especially we're going to be paying close attention to some of the the critical backlash
1: that has been coming its way. Yes. I think Especially the critical reaction to this film Tells a lot about where we are right now In terms of just film criticism But I think more generally You know, social and, and cultural discourse Culture writing uh, in North America I think is at a, a very unique point right now Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm glad you said North America Because it's um, quite a bit different in other places Definitely, Yeah. definitely and I think ultimately Joker may prove to be kind of a turning point in the film industry. I mean, potentially, in terms of just kind of changing the game away from escapist cinema, you know, Disney films, MCU, Marvel, the yeah. MCU, towards something a little bit more gritty, uh, a little bit more socially relevant. And also, maybe potentially changing the way that films are discussed. Mm. Uh, the whole discourse around you know film and and social issues could change as a result of Joker. No sooner does Joker come out and people
0: start talking about Joker than Martin Scorsese says, "Well, the MCU isn't cinema." Yeah, and you know, are the two tied together? I mean, they might be, they might not be, but um, it's certainly an odd choice of timing.
1: It seems to have opened a, a space for. These sorts of criticisms to be made, yeah, and if if it 's not directly related, at least it has contributed to this kind of changing attitude towards escapism, yeah, being kind of the dominant form of of filmmaking today. Uh, let's get into a little bit of the background of Joker. I mean... Yeah, this would be a good point as well to point out that there will be some
0: spoilers Oh, absolutely uh, for, for Joker. So if you haven't seen Joker, then maybe uh, wait until you have
1: seen the movie uh, because it's really worth watching. Definitely. And there are some major kind of plot twists in Joker, major revelations that you won't want to uh, have spoiled by us. Yes. So go see the movie first and come yeah. back and watch this. As of... Uh, today, the day we're recording this, October 31st, Joker has made over $850 million internationally at the box office. Uh, it, earlier in the year, won the Golden Lion at this year's Venice International Film Festival. Yep. Which is one of the highest honors you can get as a film. Very a surprising filmmaker. win. Yes. It was a very surprising win. Considering it was up against films like Emma by Pablo Lorraine mm-hmm. and, and other pretty notable films... It it definitely came as a shock to a lot of people. This is the eleventh feature film of director Todd Phillips, who might be kind of surprising as a name attached to a, a Golden Lion winning film. He made his name making comedies like the Hangover trilogy and Old School, and of course, it stars the amazing Joaquin Phoenix, who you know has been in great films like The Master, and you know The Immigrant, the the great uh, James Gray film, as well as Her. You know, just so many great films and and he has really become kind of a force of nature. He's been in some really amazing pictures over the last few decades. Yes. Right. I mean, when you consider Gladiator was like almost 20 years ago at this point. Walk the Line. Yeah. Yeah. Just so many great films. Mm -hmm. And this whole kind of Joker take on the classic character is, is an attempt to give an origin story for this kind of famously inscrutable villain. Uh, you know, I think the the classic line about Joker's backstory is: I prefer my history to be multiple choice. I prefer <laughs> my past to be multiple choice. Yeah. And you know, in Heath Ledger's version of Joker from The Dark Knight, he famously kind of toys with his his origin story about mm-hmm. how he got his scars. Yeah. And that has kind of become part of the Joker character, where his background is a mystery. So for for a film to kind of tackle uh, the origin story or potential origin story. Of the Joker is an interesting take.
0: It's not necessarily the first one. Uh, There was the graphic novel, The Killing Joke, which did go a little bit into his background. But yeah, it's it is an interesting choice because partly part of what makes um, Heath Ledger's Joker so effective is that you don't know where he comes from. Right. And I think if you did know where he came from, then it might ruin the character.
1: I'll yeah, if you made his origin story a- as kind of uh, socially relevant mm-hmm. as as Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix do here, I mean, you know, in in Joker, the character is is you know named Arthur Fleck. He is uh, a poor, traumatized, mentally disturbed man who suffers from compulsive laughter. He has this condition where he just can't help but laugh as a way of kind of dealing with awkward or, or disturbing situations. He wants to be a stand-up comedian and kind of fails at that. So <laughs> he has a very specific origin story and a yep. very specific set of problems and conditions that, that he's dealing with. Quite believable, I think. Yes. Yeah, quite yes.
0: believable too. Um, and that's, that's kind of what um, I think the movie does pretty well. If you look at the origin for, for instance, um, Jack Nicholson's Joker, like he falls into a vat of acid. That's kind of the
1: classic origin story, I think, of the of the Joker.
0: Yeah, well, it's just because of the, the Tim Burton Batman.
1: I thought it might have been part of the comic books as well. because,
0: well, I, mean, I mean, like I said, like, that's not part of the... Oh, I guess it is with the, the Killing Joke a little bit. But, I mean, it, it goes more into his... Like, in the Killing Joke, he is also... um, he, He's also... A stand-up comedian. A stand-up comedian, yeah, right. Yeah, who's, right. who's a failure. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, this is definitely much more believable than... The real comic book of falling into a big vat of acid,
1: and I think the title is probably important here. It's mm-hmm. deliberately not titled "The Joker," yes. but "Joker." Yeah. I think opening up the possibility that this may just be a guy who calls himself Joker. He could be the eventual inspiration for the Joker. Yeah, uh, it's not necessarily the same you know character that you've you've seen in the comic book and and other. You know, film versions of of this character. Well, that's a good point
0: because Joaquin Phoenix is what in his mid forties right now, and yeah. uh, it, Batman. I mean, Bruce Wayne in this movie is ten. Yeah. So you know, by the time by the time he's Batman age, Joker would be an old man. Arthur yeah. would be an old man. And right. Yeah, I was wondering about about that myself, but yeah, that's a good point. Is that he could just be the inspiration for the guy who eventually does go on to become. the the big nemesis.
1: Yeah. And in in terms of how this fits into the Batman lore, I mean, there is a key moment at the end of the film and, you know, we've already given the spoiler alert. So there's a key moment where a guy in a clown mask Mm -hmm. kills Bruce Wayne's parents. Yeah, And so, you know, big part of this movie is, is how Arthur Fleck as this sort of clown character inspires a whole movement of people to kind of take on this clown identity as kind of the avatar of of social unrest Mm -hmm. and so potentially right there that guy who killed the family wearing a clown mask he could be the joker
0: he could he could i mean now you're getting into you know what's canon and stuff because the guy in the canon who kills uh who kills batman's parents is a guy named joe chill right who's not the joker
1: right but he is in the, the tim burton one right yeah, so there there's a lot of different takes on this, but I wanted to get into your thoughts on the film and, and you know, what what you enjoyed or, or didn't like about the film <laughs> before we get into kind of what the critics are saying.
0: Yeah, well, um I, I've got uh I've got such a uh, an annoyed relationship with superhero movies. And I remember after seeing the first Avengers back in 2012, just thinking, I'm kind of over the superheroes now. Right. Like I've, you know, it's been about four years at this point. And, uh, you know, it was fun, but I'm, I'm getting that superhero movie fatigue. But obviously, seven years later, here we are, they're still making them. They're making more of them than ever. Right. And I was just kind of annoyed by the whole thing. Leading up to the release of Joker, I was just kind of like, I, I really don't care. I don't want to see it. But then I would watch the trailer and think, Damn it, that just looks so good. Oh, it had some amazing teasers, <laughs> huh? <laughs> it did. It really did. And I was annoyed by how good it looked because I I didn't want to want to see it. <laughs> and then it uh, it won the Golden Lion. Of course, there's no way I could avoid it then either. Uh, because I still do have major superhero movie fatigue, yep um, and um, I still you know I still do, and it's not going away anytime soon. But then when I watched it, man, that was the day before the Busan International Film Festival. So that was kind of our unofficial opening to the the film festival because it was just a long ten day period of watching a ton of movies. Mm-hmm. and it was my favorite movie of the year. Wow, um, I was just amazed by the portrait that Todd Phillips and company painted of society or how they view society to be. And that was what was most impressive to me. It was just kind of, it it just seemed to be a movie of how they perceive society to be chaotic today Mm -hmm. and how there are a lot of people, um, struggling to be heard, uh, whether whether it's through the internet or through social problems and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just very impressed with the just the portrait of society that they made. And, of course, Joaquin Phoenix's performance was incredible. Is it still my favorite movie of the year? I mean, after Biff, I saw Marriage Story. That might be my favorite movie of the year. But I'm very excited for the potential upcoming battle at the Oscars between Joaquin Phoenix and Adam Driver. Yeah. But Joaquin Phoenix definitely is deserving of an Oscar for his performance as Arthur Fleck. In oh, yeah. This. And I loved how bleak it was. I loved every moment of how bleak it was from the from the word go. I loved the music in it. Um, I loved his, what I thought to be very believable transition into madness. Yeah. And that's what I really loved about it, too, was just how believable I thought it was. I can, I can, I can totally see how, because he already starts off not so well, mm-hmm. how he just gets even worse. Yeah. And uh, that I just, I loved everything about it. I loved how bleak it was. I know that was a big criticism. Is people don't like how, how bleak it is. And it's, yeah, I mean, the, it's just like a dark
1: cloud hanging over the entire thing. But I thought it was for the best. I also really enjoy the movie. Yeah. For a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, its grittiness, its willingness to be dark, even yeah. though it's dealing with a very expensive movie character in a, a movie franchise. Mm-hmm. I loved Joaquin Phoenix's performance. It was so weird and kind of, I guess, uncomfortable a lot yeah. of the time. I mean, just the way he's even contorting his body, how thin he became for the role. Mm-hmm. And I love his willingness to go to dark places, to make himself look ugly in a lot of ways in order to convey the reality that the character of Arthur Fleck is going through. Yeah, And I love uh, that Todd Phillips kind of went to this gritty place with the movie where I think he he got at a lot of social issues. But, you know, through the prism of this character, he tied it in just enough with, you know, the, the lore of Batman and the mythology of Batman that it kind of kept the movie within that universe without it, you know over-determining the film. I mean, it is very much a character study, as he kind of set out to do. And I, I guess there were moments early on in the film where I felt like the oppressiveness of of how dark it was and how depressing it was was a little overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But especially at the end, with the ending scene where he appears in that talk show with Robert De Niro, you know, he's very much kind of reprising one of the roles from King of Comedy, the the Jerry Lewis role. Yep and being this talk show host that that Arthur Fleck looks up to that the way that whole scene plays out is just so amazing mm-hmm. i i remember just being absolutely floored just shocked when i saw it in cinemas and that might be my favorite moment of the movie cuz it does really as you said build nicely the, yes. the transition of from you know being this downtrodden Loner with with mental issues and stuff like that, to being this guy who embraces his flaws and becomes this violent killer. Uh, that transition that Arthur Fleck makes is really well done, and I, I it comes to a point so well when he appears on on, on the Murray Show, yeah. and just blows his brains out on on camera.
0: Yeah, um, very similar to Travis Bickle in that one monologue where. Travis Bickle starts off with something along the lines of, uh, hey you you screwheads, fuckheads, et cetera, et, yeah. et cetera. Like here is a guy who would not take it anymore. And I think that's really the the moment that it it happens for for Arthur. But a lot of the times there's one image I remember in particular of him Climbing up those now famous stairs, yes, with that music on in the background, and the camera is angling upwards, so it's at the foot of the stairs, and Arthur is uh, almost towards the top, and this is a climb he's got to do every single day, yeah. And with the music on, and after just a, a rough day at work, it might have been, you know, the the day that he gets mugged by those by those punks, right? Um, and I don't know. It, it's it's kind of like that uh, that scene where he's got where travis bickle puts like some sort of um thing in his drink to make it fizzy but you know you you've got this, this seltzer yeah seltzer yeah you've got this feeling that he's gonna blow eventually right and the movie builds tension extremely well in that case and it's it's the whole thing to me kind of felt like we're lighting a stick of dynamite and we're just gonna watch it go and see what happens
1: yeah, yeah, very good point. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what was your favorite moment from the film, and also what criticisms of the <laughs> film could you make?
0: My favorite moment from the film is uh, definitely the, um, the Gary Glitter dancing on the, oh, the rock on and the roll stuff. part two. Yeah, the rock and roll part two, simply because of how much he has embraced his insanity. Right. That's my favorite moment on there is when he just feels like, um, well, there's a great moment in, in one of the, in one of the uh, Hitchhiker's books. I think it's the third one where um the Arthur Arthur Dent character uh says, I will go mad mm-hmm. and he just kind of embraces his insanity and then later he's chasing a sofa across the planet. And it's just it's i it kind of reminded me of that too, is that he And Hitchhiker's
1: Guide to the Galaxy.
0: The third book. Yeah. yeah the third book in that series. Um and I, I got a kick out of that as well, is that he's he's gonna embrace his own insanity. Right. And and really enjoy himself while he's doing it, too, because that's the first time in the movie that it looks like he's having any fun. Right. He, he, it's the, the only time in the movie it looks like he's actually in, enjoying himself. He obviously has an affinity for dancing. Yes. And he's probably much too nervous and much too, uh, much too self-conscious and probably has major imposter syndrome and whatnot to actually perform any of it. But it, here he is. He doesn't care. This is this is me. I'm just going to dance on the steps. He's, I imagine he's probably something maybe he's wanted to do for years.
1: Yeah, he seems to have kind of like an old show tunes-like quality to him, like yeah. a, a guy who probably grew up watching old show tunes and wanted to imitate yeah. that style of dancing and performing. I, I would say my favorite moment or moments, in addition to the ending scene where he he shoots Murray, there's probably two I have to mention. One would be soon after the dancing scene you mentioned mm-hmm. when he's kind of escaping from, from the police on the subway. And there's a, a shot of him walking in slow motion where he just kind of has this strut yeah. about him where he's both confident, but you can already sense the danger that he poses to people. Yes. That he's going to be violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, another scene that I'd mention, which no one really seems to talk about, which but uh, I think it really kind of personifies or, or sums up the the theme of the film is when he's talking to his kind of, uh, I guess, psychiatrist or, or I guess she's more of kind therapist. of like a therapist. Therapist, yeah. Yeah, at, uh, at Arkham Asylum. And she's telling him that the funding for this program has been cut. Yeah. I can no longer talk to you. We can no longer have these therapy sessions mm-hmm. because we have no more funding. And then she kind of tells him, like, listen they don't give a shit about you, and they don't give a shit about me either. Yeah. And that, for me, kind of sums up the whole movie in a way. Because as much as a lot of critics, and we'll get into this a little bit later, as much as a lot of critics have tried to make this a movie about how it's just a a whiny sort of loner complaining about his problems. A whiny white loner. Yes. Yeah. They've been very specific about that. I think the movie is really trying to suggest like, no, the system doesn't work. Yeah. And we're not necessarily going to focus how it do- on how it doesn't work for that therapist, but it's very aware that it doesn't work for her as much as it doesn't work for him. Mm-hmm. It's screwing over everyone. Yeah. And they just happen to focus on him because that's the character. But- I think it's very clear that everyone is, is kind of involved in this and, and screwed over by this.
0: Yeah, I don't think it works for anyone in this movie. It doesn't work for his mom. It doesn't work for his uh, neighbor with the daughter. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're obviously living in a terrible building as well.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I did have some criticisms of the movie. Okay. It, it's very, I think, appropriate that you brought up his neighbor and yeah. and potential love sure. interest. I think one of the major ones was the reveal about his love interest kind of not being real mm-hmm. uh, there's moments early on in the film where he kind of talks with the Zazie Beats character and her, her child and slowly the movie kind of builds up this idea that they're actually in a relationship together and then at some point it's revealed that no this was a delusion of Arthur's and they actually go back and show that like those points you thought he was talking to her she wasn't there mm-hmm. and I just kind of felt like that was unnecessary we didn't need to know that we didn't need to see all these scenes where she wasn't actually there or she didn't actually call him or whatever. Oh, right. I think it was enough just to suggest it when, he, when she finds him in her apartment. I think that would have been more than enough.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, that's something that they do in movies a lot, though, is just in case you missed it. Yeah. And I thought the movie should have given the audience
1: more credit to just get that on their own.
0: Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, There was something I was watching the other day that uh, that did something. uh, Oh, it was um, it was that Korean movie, The Wailing. It's Mm. sort of like, you know, it was obvious to me this sort of flashback or realization that he had. But then they just showed kind of this, you know, this image of, oh, it was that thing that he's remembering, you know. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that's that's a criticism I have of a lot of movies in general. But I imagine that's probably a lot of times that might be a studio thing it could be or you know they put it in so that they don't get nagged on by the studio right um i mean hitch i mean that's been going on for a long time hitchcock was complaining about that on strangers strangers on a train right you know this is like a murder like a murder and then in the close up of the in the eyes or something they they show of like they have to tell you remind you who this person is or where she saw this guy
1: right and then uh, yes yeah, like or the ending of psycho for example where this kind of psychologist over explains everything that <laughs> yeah. happened where it's like, no, uh, we get it. Yeah. You know, he's <laughs> deranged. He's a, uh, he's psychotic. Yes. He's a psycho. Yeah. <laughs> it's understand. right in the title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another criticism I would have, and these are a little bit more minor, but some of the writing I found was a little bit weak. Some mm-hmm. of the dialogue I thought could have been a little bit, better written uh-huh. and I think the color scheme of the movie leaned a little bit more towards this kind of contemporary obsession with teal and green or teal and orange I should say in this movie it's it's a little bit more green rather than teal oh right but right. if you watch like say Transformers movies there's a lot of that there's just this colorist obsession with <laughs> teal and green or teal and, and orange because they're supposedly they pop more well it's, it's just that they're opposites on the color the yeah. color wheel so yeah, the theory is like okay, if we push everything in that direction, it's it's more dynamic or something. Right. And I would have much preferred the movie kind of take a more 70s kind of a a yellowish gritty 70s look because I thought that would have been very fitting to the cinematography. I
0: mean, I I didn't really notice the the teal and green or teal and orange much. Um I I, di- I just remember them thinking that the movie looks quite run down because he's living in uh you know, like a Gotham City that is reminiscent of New York City in the '70s.
1: Yeah, I thought the production design was great, uh-huh. but I just w- wish they would have, I guess, gone a little bit more with a '70s look. Uh huh. Okay, yeah. Fair enough. Those but are your only two criticisms. I-, I could probably make a few more, but I think they'd be minor. Those are my major ones. So yeah.
0: What What about you? Yeah. Um. The only real criticism I had, and I understand why they did this, is uh, I don't believe Robert De Niro as a talk show host. Oh, okay. I know they did it because of the King of Comedy, and because he was the Rupert Pupkin character, and Jerry Lewis was the talk show host. But Robert De Niro is just doesn't have that air about him to me, right. he, Because I mean, Jerry Lewis, you know, he was a TV personality, you know, I mean, that is what he. The type of thing that he did right? right, like Jerry Lewis would host the Oscars, right, and when in, when the Oscars ran too short, he hosted a dance competition right <laughs> um but Robert de Niro is just like watching um a, a mobster <laughs> in, a, in in a hosting a talk show yeah um i mean I, I get I get I get why they did it, but I just I didn't really believe it um, okay, he just seems he's too gruff he doesn't have the sort of the the charm of Johnny Carson or the the comedic the flair of Conan O'Brien or anything like that. Yeah. That's something that didn't really bother me, to be honest. Did it didn't bother me? Not really. But if, I, I was just thinking if I had to really crit- critique something, I would
1: say, yeah, I just I don't believe him as a, as a talk show host. Yeah. Well, obviously, audiences have responded to this very well. You know, yeah. Joker has been yeah. a huge success. Uh, in America, I think it's really resonated with people who are really just kind of feeling like society is becoming more divided along class lines mm-hmm. where, you know, it, 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 there's kind of this divide between wealthy and socially connected elites and, you know, people who are struggling, the lower classes, people who don't have as many resources, uh, people who just find it difficult to get by. And I think they, they really see a lot of meaning in Joker yeah. a, a, as well. Uh, for what
0: it's worth... Uh, I know we're going to get to to critiques in in a little while, but I would like to say that uh, the the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and the user score on Metacritic are both quite a bit higher than the critical yes. score. Yes, right. Um, it is eighty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes compared to the sixty nine critical review. Yep, and the nine point two user score compared to the fifty nine Metascore. Right. So it's
1: really it really has resonated with with audiences. Right. And it's pretty amazing that this movie has also resonated worldwide. It Mm -hmm. really seems to have tapped into a global zeitgeist. I mean, France 24 has reported that protesters in Chile, Lebanon, Hong Kong and Iraq have begun wearing joker makeup at demonstrations against government corruption. Yep. Uh, in Hong Kong, where there are massive anti-government protests still ongoing, the movie has racked up an amazing $6 million so far. So it really seems to have not only resonated with American audience or North American audiences, but really global audiences. I, I know it was a big success here in Korea as well.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I can imagine they wouldn't be too happy about this movie in China, for instance, which is why they mm. they're they're, uh, they're very—it's being— very successful in Hong Kong, yes. These days, and
1: it's interesting that that it's gotten to such a large figure without China. You yeah, know, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that is because usually these,
0: especially the like, I think you know the DC movies, the MCU movies, they're largely made for the Chinese audience.
1: Well, they, I think the Chinese market is able to make a uh, take a movie that's already made a lot of money, like kind of into the stratosphere, uh-huh. like over the billion dollar mark or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's worth mentioning as well. And, you know, Warner Brothers gave this movie, they financed it, but they gave it a relatively low budget considering, you know, the the popularity of the character. I, I think it was budgeted at around $60 million. Mm-hmm. And they really kind of took a bit of a risk in supporting Todd Phillips's concept about making Joker uh, much darker and much more, uh, I guess, uh, grittier than, say, previous versions of the character. He really kind of took inspiration from 70s character studies like Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. And he thought of Joker as, quote, a way to sneak a real movie. In the studio system under the guise of a comic book film.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, in his um, in his official response to all of this criticism. Yes. That's what he says. He says, that literally what we wanted to do was just make a real movie, call it Joker. Yeah. You know, so, um, and you know, that was something that I was wondering about uh, leading up to its releases. Is this movie using the Joker character in the DC license as a crutch? Right. You know, would people go and see this movie if it were not about the Joker, if it were just about some guy who goes crazy and becomes a criminal mastermind? There's no link to DC at all. Would people still be interested in this movie? Would it still be successful? Right. And I mean, we we won't know the answer to that, but I think the movie would have still been great anyway. But that that does seem to be what he was doing. He's like, let's because he says, let's make a real movie and call it joker.
1: Oh, it's a, it's a brilliant move. And and almost, you know, joker-like in its it's kind of the the way it uses <laughs> uh the the industry trend towards right. comic book, you know, movies and franchises and remakes against itself to to introduce this very anti-establishment yes. message. Yes. Uh it, it's a very very well done on Phillips's part. Yeah, well, I I and it shows you his attitude
0: as well towards You know MCU and stuff. The fact that he said let's call let's make a real movie, yes, and call it Joker.
1: Well, he's he's I think taken a very irreverent attitude Uh towards I guess social norms for for quite some time. I mean, I I think his first film was a Gigi Allen uh, film, a documentary. Oh yeah, on uh, on him. So I mean, he's he obviously likes these sort of irreverent themes and characters and and whatnot. Uh, And prior to the film's release, or I guess. After the film's release, he did an interview where he kind of bemoans the effect that, quote unquote, woke culture had on comedy. Yes. And he talked about how he wanted to use Joker as a vehicle for kind of irreverent filmmaking without using comedy. Yeah. He wanted to make something that would kind of challenge conventions and norms, but not make it a comedy. Uh,
0: Yeah. And I think he succeeded because there are obviously there are a lot of people who find that this movie is very threatening yeah and unsafe
1: yeah which we'll get into in just a moment uh you know we should give credit too to warner brothers they this studio has backed movies in the past like natural born killers and a clockwork orange and i think they have been known to kind of release these sort of challenging risky movies yeah Yeah. uh and it probably plays into their own strategy as well i mean They've been trying to compete against Marvel and Disney and these sort of, you know, glossy, uh, high budget escapist sort of movies, whereas, you know, what they're offering movies like Batman versus Superman, for example, they're. They didn't do very well. They were pretty critically reviled. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's
0: a that's a DC problem: is that they're not matching the the fun escapism of Marvel.
1: Yeah, movies that are you know known for being very witty. There's a lot of wisecracking, yeah. very good-looking, super buff characters. Right. Optimistic.
0: Yeah, like Superman traditionally is a very optimistic character, but he's a, a brooding loner in uh, <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. current the current line right. of films.
1: Right. And you know, Marvel movies tend to be very CGI heavy, for yeah. example. Um, it's almost always these like godlike figures who are rich or or, you know, imbued with with super powers. Yeah. Who kind of take on these vague CGI threats uh from other planets. So And there's a blue beam in there somewhere. <laughs> there's always a blue the beam big somewhere. Blue beam. They're very safe. They're very family friendly. And for the most part, they were very critically Mm well-reviewed. I mean, I took a look at all the MCU movies. Uh, I think 16 of the MCU movies are above 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Black Panther has a whopping 97% approval rating. And Black Panther is an important movie. Oh, definitely. It's, It's an important movie. It's still very safe, though. Yeah, and I don't... I would take issue with 97%. Uh-huh. I mean, but Rotten Tomatoes and, and the way aggregators work is a whole other issue that we yeah. can talk about another time maybe. Right. But I just wanted to to note that because by comparison, even the lowest rated Marvel movies ever, that, w- that would be Thor, The Dark World, and The Incredible Hulk, are still just two percentage points behind Joker. So they're oh, yeah. both rated at 67%. Okay, Joker is now at 69%. Yeah. So that just kind of gives you a bit of a hint about how the critics have received this movie.
0: And, well, uh, the American critics, because these,
1: these numbers for Joker were higher. They were in something like the 80s yes. after it premiered at Venice. Yeah. And the, the majority of the critics were, I guess, European.
0: Right. And the, the Metacritic as well. The Metacritic score down yes. to 59. Yes. Uh, that, that, that plummeted. Right. That plummeted. Um, but it's it, it does show you as well, perhaps,
1: uh, some sort of cultural differences. Yeah, perhaps. Cultural tastes. Uh, and it's worth noting, too, I, I think it was after the its premiere at, at the Toronto International Film Festival that its ratings really started to drop. But yeah. there have been some notable advocates for the film mm-hmm. some some critics who have given it really high reviews i mean mark kermode gave it a pretty good review richard roper has has praised it justin chang at the la times Zan brooks at the guardian there have been some some critics who have really uh been fans of this movie mm-hmm. uh i think it's also worth pointing out too that you know we're not saying you shouldn't criticize this movie obviously we've oh, yeah. criticized it yeah You know, uh, I I think there have been some people who have tried to conflate, um, you know, discussions of the way critics have reacted to this film with, you know, trying to argue that you shouldn't criticize this movie at all or that it's above criticism. I mean, I I've never
0: been a fan of that. That's why I part, part something that turned me off of Black Panther was this feeling like you couldn't criticize it.
1: Yeah. If anything, that was something that that seem to take hold more for MCU movies like Black Panther. Yeah. uh, Or even movies like Wonder Woman than Joker. Right. I I guess because it is showing
0: signs of social progress in movies, therefore it is kind of above criticism. And I I always disagree with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, every movie is subject to criticism. It just has to be well-founded. Yeah. And I guess that leads—that's a good segue into
0: uh, talking about some of the critique for Joker because there's a lot of critique out there that I find to
1: be in
0: very poor taste. (laughs) Well, to say the least, it's
1: not only in poor taste. I I think it's vitriolic, Uh and it seems to be almost willfully ignorant of the film's intentions. Yeah, very obtuse. A lot of these critiques are very obtuse. If I had to kind of summarize, I think where a lot of the bad reviews of this film. Uh, kind of trend towards, they just tend to be very dismissive mm-hmm. of the idea of representing poverty or mental illness on the big screen. I think they seem to really take issue with the populist anti-establishment appeal of the film. There, there just seems to be this, you know, very obvious disgust with the idea of, of a populist film even being made. Uh, under the guise of you know a comic book character or whatever, and I, I it's been a while since I've seen critics react with this much hatred yeah. towards a film, and almost just making up you know criticisms out of whole cloth. I mean, th- th- there have been things levied against this film that are are totally baseless. Yeah,
0: I I agree with that, and um I'm I'm looking forward to diving into one topic in particular. But I think something that's important to note is that. I think Joker is very much a movie of the times. Yes. Right? And it's a very time-appropriate movie. So, I mean, you can't you can't talk about Joker and not go a little bit into the current political landscape. For instance, particularly in, in the United States, you know, if you've got a a populist in office right now, I mean, this is kind of a reflection of society as I said.
1: Well, yeah, and it's also the fact that it's tapped into protest m- movements in other countries. Yeah is a sign that it's obviously hitting a nerve with society, not just in America, but around the world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe we should just dive right into the criticism. Yes. I've kind of grouped it in different themes here, and I thought maybe we should just take, like each theme one at a time okay. and discuss each one all right like each type of each type of critique yes so to speak all right the first one and the one i think that we should probably get to uh first off is the idea that somehow this movie glorifies incels yeah uh, is pro-trump or may inspire violence mm-hmm. okay uh, so let's major, start with the incel one yes yeah, major notable critics here uh david Elric. uh At IndieWire called it a toxic rallying cry for self-pitying incels, (laughs) while David Edelstein referred to it as "quote an anthem for incels." Uh huh. Uh, So that's the incel criticism. Okay. Jeff Yang at CNN referred to it as "quote an insidious validation of the white male resentment that helped bring President Donald Trump to power." Okay. End quote. The media really seemed to jump on this U.S. military memo or email that was issued to its service members that kind of you know vaguely hinted at the idea that maybe there could be Uh, A threat of mass shooting related to Joker screenings. Yeah, that's right. It was uh, the FBI was involved in that too. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is despite the Army saying that it was, quote, unaware of any specific plots or suspects, Mm -hmm. end quote. Virtually every media outlet seemed to report on it as if they had said the exact opposite thing. Yeah. They're literally (laughs) saying there are no specific threats, yet every headline seemed to suggest that. You were going to get, you know, shot up if you went to see this movie. Uh, the only thing that I was able to find was that there was
0: potential, uh, this is in quotes, disturbing and very specific chatter on the dark web.
1: Yes. Yeah. But then again, they say in that same email, there's no credible threat. Right. So, you know, I, I guess there is the potential anytime a violent movie is released... There is the potential for someone to, I guess, latch onto that as an excuse to commit violence.
0: And, you know, that uh, that Aurora shooter who had the green hair who uh, killed people at the the Dark Knight Rises. I mean, the Joker tag is something the media attached to him, though it wasn't his personal. No,
1: there, were, there was no relation to yeah. the Joker character. No, he, he just had green hair. And the media kind of latched on to the statement made by certain uh, family members of the Aurora shooting victims mm-hmm. to kind of you know, critique the movie or, or say that it was maybe irresponsible or too violent. Yeah. Though they did not want the movie banned and other family members kind of, you know, didn't sign off yeah. on this statement. So I guess if we can lump all those criticisms into one sort of group, what would your response be to that? Um, well, the, the incel thing is the one that
0: puzzles me the most, to be honest, because as far as I know... An incel stands for involuntary celibate. Yep. And they are people, you know, they are typically men who think that even though they are nice guys and that they've got a lot to offer, um, women don't want them. And so they kind of they kind of start to develop this uh this misogyny. Oh God, why can't I get a girlfriend? Oh, I hate women. Um but I don't think I don't think that Arthur Fleck exhibits any of this behavior at all to be honest because the yeah. I think the thing that really got people about this is that he might fancy the the girl next door with the daughter and then it's revealed that all of all of the times that you've seen them together have been a fantasy and then later on he goes and he and he it's implied that he murders her and probably the daughter as well
1: yeah it's suggested i mean i, yeah. I i'd like to see it again so i could actually I,
0: and i think he does but yeah. it's at this point when he starts to murder everybody right <laughs> you know and th- there's no real point in the movie where he uh, is bemoaning that she doesn't like
1: him i mean the like she's She's an insignificant character in the movie, right? Well, she's significant, but it's she's not the primary reason why he's committing violence. Yes, exactly, or really a reason at all. Yeah, um, she's just a
0: victim in his way. Right, right, and she's like it's almost just um, just
1: incidental. You know what I mean? The only other violent act he commits against women uh, other than uh, there is this just was his ed- mom. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's what I was going to say. Like he he does uh, kill his mother in the hospital. Yeah. When it's revealed that she lied to him. Yeah. About his his true parentage. She was actually adopted. And uh, so and he was abused as a child. too, yeah. And she kind of let that abuse happen or, or didn't intervene. I guess. Yeah. She was also probably being abused. And so he kills her as a re- response to that and again that has nothing to do with the fact that he's not getting laid it's yeah. it's it's a response to the fact that he's been lied to and, and basically his whole identity is shattering before his very eyes and
0: when he kills the neighbor um i it didn't strike me anyway out of resentment that uh that she wasn't going to go out with him he never even really um uh, asks her out right does he i mean um i know there's stuff going on in his fantasies but he, he like i said it like he never actually tries to make anything happen and it's never really implied that he thinks of himself as just a really nice
1: guy so why won't women date me it's just it's not part of the movie well i mean if you take this this tack on the movie then virtually every movie where a guy who doesn't get laid commits violence yeah it's an incel movie. Yeah. Taxi Driver is, quote, a anthem for incels now. Yeah. Because Travis Bickle isn't getting laid yeah. and he kills people. Therefore, it's automatically an incel it's movie. It's an incel movie. And also, I mean, the incel thing
0: is a, a an identity, an identity of a community that did not exist in the 80s.
1: No, it kind of emerged in the, the 90s, as far as I know, and, and really, I guess, became, you know, common currency in recent years, yeah, I'd and, say this decade. Yeah, with, the, with the, the continued advancement of social media. So why would you project this current phenomena onto the past? Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, and there's really no point in the movie in which you know him being an incel is is a motivating force of the film. No, I think
0: by the time he kills the neighbor, it's just something that he enjoys doing. Yeah, at this point, and you know he's more of a serial killer. At this point, yeah, you know, preying
1: on people. What do you think about the the point about this being a, a validation of you know resentment, white male uh, resentment that helped bring Donald Trump to to power? In terms of uh, Jeff Yang's criticism,
0: Arthur kind of strikes me more as just uh, an everyman who works in. Um, a, a menial terrible job who has some serious problems that society won't help and that he and his mom can't afford to uh, can't afford to fix on their own privately right and that people around him are garbage um, it doesn't really strike me as a as a a white thing or a well, white yeah. resentment male thing I don't know everyone everyone can relate to working an awful job and everyone can I'm sure, relate to people being awful to them. It just seems to happen that it happens to a guy who's already not really mentally stable and it just gets worse and worse for him. Um, I just kind of
1: reject that premise in general. Well, I, I would go a step farther and just say about how absolutely elitist mm-hmm. it is to describe someone who's suffering from mental illness, who's you know traumatized as a child, who's beaten on mm-hmm. more than one occasion... Uh, who's poor, as someone who's just resentful. Yeah. You know, like these are actual serious issues.
0: Yeah, and that's what I mean. I think his his insanity is earned, and I think it's believable. As yeah. well. That's what I came out with thinking. That's what I came out thinking about.
1: Yeah, I never for a moment saw this as, uh, you know, Joker as being a movie where it's like, oh, Arthur Fleck is right in committing violence. He's justified. We should feel that what he's doing is righteous. What it's no. doing is saying, all right, here's, here's a Petri dish. Here are the conditions that are going on. Here's what's going to come out of this Petri dish if these conditions are in place. Yeah. Or here's what could come out of it. In the same way Taxi Driver did, it's yeah. like, let's put these conditions in place. Mm-hmm. This is what you're going to get as a society if you allow you know people who are mentally not well, who have no real social support, who are poor who you know maybe are already prone to violence who are you know because of their past because of their whatever uh here's what you could get if you do have nothing to help them Mm -hmm. and in that sense it is empathetic but it's not saying what he does in terms of violence is justified it's just saying in the same way if a disease grows out of a petri dish because of these certain conditions it's not saying the disease is good. It's yeah. just saying the, these conditions could lead to this.
0: And that's also why I equate this movie to them just lighting a stick of dynamite and seeing what happens until the fuse reaches the end. Yeah, and it's just presented in this way, right? Without any such agenda of, uh, you know, saying like, yeah, let's. He's he's right to do all of this. Right. Yeah. Uh,
1: I I I think that's silly. I love what Dan Brooks. Uh, wrote in the New York Times magazine in in response to some of this criticism. And I want to quote him at full. He he actually quotes a another critic in, in order to make his point. And he says, quote, at Slate, Sam Adams wrote that, quote, no matter how empathetic Phoenix's performance, it feels like a risk to feel too much for him, not knowing who might be sitting next to you in the theater, using his resentments to justify their own, end quote. And then Dan Brooks continues... Adams could handle the movie's nuanced portrayal self-loathing turned outward, but what about its effect on sexless losers? <laughs> End quote. So it's yeah. like, yeah, the the critical attitude is pretty obvious. It's like, well, I'm, you know, able to to see this movie as a portrait of a, a uh, you know a loner and and a bad guy, but you know, this loser is sitting next to me. He could get the wrong idea and actually do something bad about it. Yeah, And it's kind of this idea of like, well, I'm surrounded by losers here who (laughs) will probably get the wrong idea if they're not taught by people like me what to think and how to feel and how to interpret this.
0: Yeah, I just think sometimes it's okay to tell a story. You know, like this is It's okay to trust your audience. It's okay to trust your audience and it's okay to tell a, a story. I mean, if you want to make this person- this a certain
1: way in a specific way that's okay yeah it's 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 creative freedom right and maybe sometimes it's good to give your audience a little bit of credit yeah that maybe they can figure out the idea that hey if i'm seeing someone do something bad on screen i shouldn't do this in real life yeah and it it almost seemed like the media was was actually disappointed when there wasn't you know, uh, a mass shooting at yeah. a Joker screening. It's like, It almost seemed like they wanted it. Yeah, like they were predicting it. Yeah. Yeah, and they were be- they were betting on it. Because it just totally would have justified their narrative that this movie was irresponsible, that there's a whole bunch of, you know, seething incels just waiting to pick up a gun. Mm-hmm. And this movie was, was the chance they were waiting for. Uh, so that was the first group of criticism. Well, I if didn't. I may, I
0: kind of want to uh, read something. This is from um, uh, something that vice wrote Mm -hmm. that lead up to joker has been intense and quite frankly exhausting but what we can hope for from all of this at the very least is a good movie Mm -hmm. but they're not talking about all the the teasers and stuff they're talking all about the uh the controversy uh, surrounding it and i just kind of thought i isn't it sites like vice that kind of start up this kind of exhausting <laughs> narrative they created the controversy yeah exactly i mean you're exhausted by it right i'm exhausted by it
1: <laughs> yeah like, you're well, the one making it it's cuz they weren't talking about the movie i mean it yeah. it's so typical of you know mass media nowadays to complain about something that they're responsible for perpetuating or creating in the first place their own kind of self-generated narrative yeah. to to kind of insert themselves into the the story And, you know, probably make some money along the way. Yes. Uh, A second group of criticisms that I would, you know, kind of group into to one category is the idea that, okay, maybe the Joker isn't inspiring violence. Maybe it isn't, you know, pro incel or pro Trump, but it's just boring. It's poorly made or it isn't about anything. Mm -hmm. And those criticisms tend to. Uh, I would say fall into a second category of people who are like, well, we can't dismiss it out of hand because of its, you know, pro-violent nature. (laughs) So let's take a different tack on it. Dana Stevens at Slate says, quote, the experience of sitting through it is highly unpleasant, but that unpleasantness has less to do with graphic violence. There are only one or two scenes that go hard gore-wise than with claustrophobia and boredom. And she specifically takes issue with the character of Arthur Fleck, who she sees as a grotesque whiner. You know, <laughs> he's basically just a whiner. Yeah. She says the film is, quote, a feature-length exercise in voyeur- voyeuristic self-pity. Poor little clownsy-wounsy. The world gave him no chance but to turn evil, end quote. Yeah. So, again, the idea of, like, you know, oh, you were malnourished and beaten as a child. Right. You're, you were adopted and your whole life is a lie uh mm-hmm. you're beaten on several occasions you're poor you don't have any friends the you know one resource you had that actually provided you help for your social and and mental problems the funding's cut yeah you lose your job this is just whining. If you complain about this, according to this critic and a lot of others, it's whining. Yeah. You shouldn't complain about losing your job or having no support. You should just shut up and take it. Kind of like um, all of those things happening is
0: just living in society. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean that obviously is not just living in society. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No. Okay. So, I mean, if, if that, like all of those things are really terrible, right? Mm-hmm. But- if i the thing that strikes me when they say like they're whining is mm-hmm. because like well everyone that happens to everybody we're living in society that's just how society is
1: so why is it affecting you this way well i, I think it's easy to say that if you haven't experienced those things and i'm sure most of these critics have never been that poor right they've well, never dealt well, with these mental issues right well that's well i mean i think we're saying the
0: same thing Yeah, is that you know, they're saying that he has nothing to whine about or right. they're at least implying that he right. has nothing to whine about, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like, well, society is awful, right? We get it. Right. But, you know, I'm doing fine.
1: Right. Right? Yeah, I live in a in a very, you know, nice apartment in a yeah. very high-priced city and I make a good salary. Yeah. So shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and stop complaining. Stop whining. Yeah,
0: so, um. yeah, and you're you're right. I mean, a lot of these reviews are just kind of dismissive they're dismissive. Whereas I found I found the conditions believable.
1: Well yeah, probably because we're a lot closer to being in them than a lot of these people who are writing about Joker professionally. A lot of these people who are getting paid to write about it, mm-hmm. uh, have experienced a lot less of these conditions, at least nowadays, than than we have. And yeah. and we're fine. I mean in, in yeah. terms of you know, our, our well-being, I guess. But I guess we probably are f- surrounded by more people who are living in conditions like these, or see them more often mm-hmm. than some of these critics do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, here, I've got, uh, I, I've got one, if I may. Yeah, I've got one. Uh, so this is this came from a generally positive review, and I want to know your impression on this. Um, so, for what it's worth, Joker is superior to Suicide Squad and Venom. Um, But the idea that Joker is significantly more mature and intelligent than the previous superhero or supervillain films, you must be joking. (laughs) So what
1: do you make of that? Well, I guess I I just don't understand why they would say that. I mean, you can have criticisms uh, of Joker, how it's written, uh, particular scenes. Like I mentioned before, the reveal about the love interest and, and whatnot. But it just is obviously more serious. I mean yeah. it's obviously grittier. That's where the risk came in. That's yes. why Warner Brothers gave the movie 50 million or 60 million dollars as opposed to 200 million dollars because it's less safe. Mm-hmm. That's why people are responding to it because it's not another escapist, safe, family-friendly Marvel movie. Yeah. It's grittier and that's what people like about it. Yeah. Yeah, and I would I would say that
0: perhaps the reason why Martin Scorsese has come out of the woodwork, saying MCU is not cinema is. I, I'm sure it's connected to Joker. Yeah, I would think so. Like I he probably so. saw that and said, "Yeah, that was that's a real movie." Right. You know. Uh, but this uh, this same this same critic, uh, by the way, this is Nicholas Barber of the Guardian, says Joker is ultimately nothing but a flimsy two-hour supervillain origin movie. Um, which again, I mean, it's it, that kind of that kind of does strike me as something that you might say about Venom. Right. You know, just uh yeah, just almost another run of the
1: mill supervillain movie. Deliberately missing the point yeah. or uh, you know, intentionally willfully kind of ignoring the social relevance of the film. Yeah. I mean another quote that I found is from uh Anne Hornaday at the Washington Post who writes that the Joker character quote, epitomizes the self pity, entitlement, and rage that have infected a small but disproportionately vocal and psychotically violent cohort of American society, she continues, he is the avatar of a populist movement of like-minded losers, <laughs> who instead of wielding torches and pitchforks, don green fright wigs and red noses. End quote. Yeah. So yeah. the idea is that, okay, well, this movie is either not socially relevant; it's meaningless, or if it is socially relevant, it it really is only appealing to like the people who marched in Charlottesville. Or incels or Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any appeal beyond that. It only appeals to the losers out there. Well, actually, that's a that's um
0: that kind of ties into something that you mentioned that this movie is somehow uh, pro-Trump, yes. or something like that. Um, because uh, that it might be from that same article uh, that you just read, or it was from one earlier where, uh, and it was a point I really liked about how implying that this is really a movie for the Trump era because there's a scene where he's literally dancing on top of a police car right. and justice is completely thrown out the window. But rather than looking at that as a as a pro-Trump statement, yeah. I kind of just view it as a, what I've said earlier today, just a, perhaps a neutral sketch of society a today. A reflection. A reflection of society today in In that case, that would almost make it anti trump,
1: yeah, just by showing the conditions and how awful they are for a yeah. lot of people. I think it is inherently critical,
0: yeah, and I'll just showing the potential the the chaos of um and and the the utter utter mayhem that goes on with with the White House today, yeah right i mean that that's kind of, that's what I got from watching Joker dance on the cop
1: car, right. It, I, I love that scene, that whole yeah. sequence of just utter chaos uh, towards the end of the film. Yeah. And, you know, there's another critic who who takes issue with a, a line that Arthur says, and I, I want to mention this to make a broader point. Uh, this is Stephanie Zacharek, who complains that the movie's philosophy is, quote, phony, and she really takes issue with uh, the part where Arthur says, everybody just screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Mm-hmm. And she kind of says... Quote, Who doesn't feel that way in our t- our terrible modern times? but Arthur's observation is one of those truisms that's so true it just slides off the wall. a message that both the left and the right can get behind and use for their own aims. It means nothing end quote. And so my big issue with this is the idea that when Arthur speaks, he has to say exactly what the theme of the movie is. Mm-hmm. so he should say like. The problem, the reason I'm here, is because of you know the one percent has <laughs> controlled too much of the wealth and and cut social fund. You know, yeah. When people speak, when characters speak, they don't always say exactly what they're going through. Yeah. Their inability to express themselves is what makes them a character. Yeah. And right. That's what makes uh, someone like Travis Bickle
0: and exactly. in this case Arthur Fleck so so effective is that they they're not capable
1: of expressing themselves. Well, a great example. Travis Bickle always says I don't like to devote my attention to morbid, you know, self-pity or self-attention. Yeah. Yeah. That's all he does. Yes. <laughs> right? That's what he does the entire movie because he doesn't understand himself. Mm-hmm. The same way that Arthur Fleck isn't able to, uh, you know, express exactly why he's upset or exactly why he's he's come to this point in his life. He just kind of says this vague sentiment or expresses mm-hmm. this vague sort of outrage at society gone wrong. And... That's good writing. I, yeah. I, I don't expect him to give a treatise on why he is where he is in, in society right now or in yeah. life right now. It's nuanced. Yeah. yeah. And I, I it just kind of makes me wonder, like, have you seen a film before? Because characters don't speak that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um this is from um uh this is
0: from the New York Amsterdam News. And I believe the the author is La Sandoval. This is kind of a, a neutral a neutral review, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I believe it was a positive one. However, okay. what this person is saying is um, is is perfectly neutral. Um, but this is talking about how Joaquin Phoenix makes for a disturbingly likable Joker, mm. kind of in the same vein as as uh, Travis Bickle, but saying that. The more that the thing, the more that the movie goes on, he's becoming likable, and maybe that's the most disturbing part of Joker. Mm. I kind of interpret this as, as a as a neutral, as a neutral perspective, just because disturbing can be used in different ways. Right. I mean, yeah. Sometimes when I watch Taxi Driver, I do think, oh, it's kind of weird. I kind of like Travis up to a point, obviously. Alex
1: Delarge in a clockwork orange.
0: Exactly. Right. And. I maybe it's a matter of taste. I love that device. I love it when you can when you can be a little conflicted. It's like yeah. why do why do I kind of want to hang out with Alex DeLarge? Right. You know? Why do I and you know, and I I kind of agree. I mean, Arthur Fleck has
1: moments where he seems to be kind of likable. Well, it's something that Kubrick said about A Clockwork Orange where uh, there's something about the human id that just seems to delight in someone breaking the rules. Yeah. And, you know, going against all conventions. Well, that's why
0: comedies are all all about um, people behaving badly. And they've always exactly. been. Any comedy you've ever read, you've ever watched, you've ever listened to, it's always about people behaving badly.
1: Yeah, and it's just built into the human psyche to kind of, I guess, find some th- something thrilling in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no fault of the movie. I think the movie is only bad if it doesn't contextualize that enough so that it's not just, you know, violence for violence sake. It's yeah. not just exploitive. What do you think the message of Joker ultimately is? Because all these people are basically saying, like, there is nothing there. There's no there there. Yeah. What um, do you think the message ultimately is? I
0: don't know if there is a, so to speak, message. Um, I I still just think that this is Todd Phillips saying, here's... Here's just here's what I think. Here's what I think society kind of looks like right now. Yeah. Um. And to me, that's enough. I don't right. think it has an agenda. Right. Um. I don't think it. I I don't think it really uh, is saying, you know, anything that these critics have been talking about. Right. It's not an anthem for incels. It's not a pro-Trump, um, you know, march or anything like that. Um. I kind of just think it is a movie for the times. Yeah. Um, Would this movie have been made if Hillary had won in 16? I don't know. I I think it's
1: very much a movie of of its time and to me that's enough. Well, it's worth kind of wondering too if all these critics would have liked Taxi Driver or would like Taxi Driver if it was released today. Would they be saying the same things (laughs) about Taxi Driver or even the King of Comedy? Yeah, or, you know, A Clockwork Orange. Right. You know, with uh, all these characters sort of
0: behaving in this really awful way. They, Is it okay for people to behave badly anymore, or are you just going to get chewed alive on social media for doing so? Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, and, you know, times change so quickly. Look at the horrible bosses, for instance. I mean, there are so many sexual assault jokes in there on the Jennifer Aniston character. Right. And I, I don't know. I don't know how um, how people would respond to uh, to things like this. And maybe that's why there aren't many comedies being made these
1: days. Well, I think that's why Joker has been so successful is that it kind of just, it it doesn't take on those issues, but instead kind of looks at the conditions and then just kind of has this character who's like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. I'm just going to go nuts. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to try to dance around these issues or, you know, I, I'm just going to go out and do something. And what he does is awful. It's, it's violent. It's the sort of thing that, as a society, we should do everything we can to prevent from happening. But part of preventing that is taking an honest look at the conditions that create these sort of characters. And I think Joker succeeds at that. I think that is the message of the film. Uh, I mean, another thing worth noting, too, and just in terms of how far critics have gone to kind of deliberately smear this movie... Uh, or at least deliberately misunderstand its intentions, is the whole Gary Glitter controversy. Oh, yeah. Uh, there were numerous news outlets, that, like The Guardian, for example, that were arguing or, or suggesting that the inclusion of rock and roll part two in that staircase scene is actually going to put money in the hands of convicted pedophile Gary Glitter, who wrote the song. Well, then every
0: every arena and sports stadium in North America is going to give money to Gary Glitter, too. They play oh, that no, song it, everywhere. It
1: gets much better. Uh-huh. Because less than a week later, when the you know somebody actually bothered to look into this, actually contacted the rights holders of the song, uh-huh. the Guardian had to report less than a week later, actually, no, he's not making any money off of it. Yeah, he's not going to make anything. So let's just run with this smear that's totally baseless and that we haven't even bothered checking into yeah for a week (laughs) in hopes that maybe it'll do some damage or at least drum up enough controversy so we can get some more clicks yeah you know
0: yeah um well i mean that's that's all that's what it's all about these days too is the the clickbait headlines right exactly that vice article that i told you about the headline is apparently after all that drama joker is terrible yeah right um and they're just talking about the quote-unquote brutal reviews that it's receiving. Yeah. Poor Joker with its sixty-nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and its uh, its its golden line at Venice,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this whole controversy over the Joker and this really vitriolic response to it on the part of some critics says a lot about where film criticism is today. I mean, I think if you look back at at film criticism in the past. And, and you know, some of the research I've done, early film critics often came from, say, the sports section or they were theater reviewers or something. There were people who wanted to be writers. And so they would, you know, kind of see their job as a way to kind of hone their chops. You know, maybe they'd stick in a, a poetic phrase every now and then. In the 60s and 70s, you get critics like the Cahiers de Cinema critics, Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut. You get people like Pauline Kael and Andrew Sarris. And they're coming from a
0: purely cinematic background now.
1: Yes. Right? And they're, you know, becoming much more uh, from the point of view of, of cinema as, as art, They saw directors as visionaries. They were much more socially conscious, and they would be really passionate advocates of the films they liked and vicious critics of the films that they didn't like. I mean, Pauline Kael famously hated Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, She hated uh, A Clockwork Orange, for example, which is relevant to this conversation. And I think things really started to change when the internet became a thing, when it became popular in the 90s. Once you
0: give everybody a voice which you know i don't think there's anything really wrong with that but it certainly does change things right if everybody uh from all walks of life if everybody has the ability to to give their thoughts to things
1: it's inevitably going to change yeah and it changed things in two really specific ways Uh i think uh first because there there were so many critical voices people stopped going to specific news outlets or specific critics, they stopped reading print media and started going to aggregators. Yeah. It's like, wow, there's so many reviews. What is this one easy-to-grasp number that I can use to see, you know, what critics think about this movie? And, yeah, I think you can kind of be
0: misled by these numbers because aggregates, especially Rotten Tomatoes, for instance, is just a, a green splat for dislike and, and, and a red tomato for a like. So the number you know, it isn't necessarily how much they like something. It's just how many people just like it. Right. Right? You could have a 99%, but all the reviews could be sort of like, well, it's good, but... Yeah, it's yeah. not
1: great. It's all right.
0: Yeah, but it could be, wow, look, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. And I guess it's where some of the... the critical nuances uh, a little lost
1: yeah and I think another thing that changed film criticism is the fact that because there was so much competition because print media was losing money to digital media critics had to find a way to stand out more to get the reviews read so something really important happened I think that kind of changed the model that film reviewers operated under Matt Taibbi has written about this more about the news media in general in his book, hate Inc., And he talks about how like the rise of say Fox news uh, made media companies realize that they could make more money by tailoring their, their stories to specific demographics instead of aiming for a general audience. Right. right. So say when Pauline Kale is writing, she's writing for everyone. Yep. She's not just writing for like liberals in New York, yeah, though you know, she may be skewed in that direction. Fox News showed that you could write stories or tailor stories to say, like just the right or mm-hmm. just the left. And you know, get clicks that way, get views that way. Mm-hmm. And so I think other media outlets took note. Uh, this kind of phenomenon was amplified by the rise of social media where I think clickbait headlines started to dominate. In order to to stand out in a crowd, you had to make a headline and kind of take a point of view on things that would get people outraged, upset. Especially, this is especially important when people typically
0: don't read the article in question Mm. and will just leave a comment based on the headline alone. Right. And it's easy to fall into that trap. I find myself falling into that trap from time to time. And then I realize someone will point out well no this is just a terrible headline or i will kind of realize no i should click on it first right it's easy it's easy to fall into it.
1: and you see this with a lot of the reviews for joker where they're really just honing in on on certain you know people or topics or issues that they know their audience will hate yes. or will get a you know have a strong response to like writing about incels is yep. a classic case right it's That's like right. nobody wants to take the side of sexless losers yeah. right So if they can attach their review to a social issue that's controversial and take the side against it, then they're going to be targeting their story towards kind of a vaguely liberal audience. People who are like, well, that's not me. I don't have that problem. I get laid. I have a girlfriend. I have a boyfriend. So let's shit on these sexless losers (laughs) for a while. And also, you know, learn about Joker. You can also stoke
0: outrage in all the other forms that we've talked about, like talking, uh, calling it a, a like a a
1: pro Trump a pro Trump anthem, yeah, things or like, that. like saying it's going to inspire gun violence. Basically, whatever issue is kind of dominating the twenty four hour news cycle, mm-hmm. you can find a way to to spin your review so that it matches it, yeah, and so that you get more clicks by kind of fitting it within that discourse. But there are obviously some critics who do seem to feel this way, though. Well, it's hard to know. Yeah. Like, it's hard to know if they actually feel this way or if they're just like, well, I'm going to get noticed. I'm going to keep my job, which, by the way, when print media kind of went by the wayside, film reviewers had to work harder to keep their job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just much more competitive. Yeah. So, you know, what better way to keep your job than to just constantly generate clickbait headlines and get clicks, get money for your advertisers so you can keep your job. Yeah, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I I, I I do like the
0: um, the discussion that we're having about how the media is possibly just skewing the narrative a little yeah. bit. And that's that's powerful because perception is reality. Yeah. Right? If you skew something, if you're in the position of power like the media, you do have the power to sort of shape the public's perception
1: on things. I think it's indicative of how a lot of film reviewers, like a lot of reporters, have become very elitist. They don't necessarily live amongst, you know, the, the masses of normal people out there. They don't necessarily go and report on how people in, say, rural America or, you know, inner cities are living. And they tend to be kind of ensconced in this quite comfortable bubble Where, as you kind of mentioned before, they're fine, Mm -hmm. they're doing okay. Yeah. So, why would why would people be complaining? Why are people so upset? Yeah. We all live in a society. (laughs) Right. They're just whining. Yeah. You know, if you make this movie about a a white guy who has mental issues and is poor, he's just whining. Yeah. You know. So shut up, stop complaining, and let's watch the next Marvel movie. And, you know, for all those who m- might be listening and saying,
0: well, you know, my life isn't so good. I just lost my job, etc., and I just got mugged recently, but I'm not going crazy. I mean, I don't think neither of us are saying, well, you should be going crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I just, I'm acknowledging that this is just the circumstances of the story and how the circumstances worked in the case of the
1: story, and that's okay. That's yeah, my, that's the way I will defend the Joker. One well, and the movie is, I think, just pointing out the social conditions and one particularly violent character that emerged out of them. Yeah. But the main point of it, I think, is simply saying, like, look, if you're struggling out there, there's a lot of people in your in your shoes mm-hmm. right now. There are a lot of people going through this, and while you know, violent a violent response to it isn't the right the right response. Yeah. It's important to be aware of how tough it is out there, yeah. and maybe anger is justified. And I think a lot of film critics and film reviewers have just really started to to have disgust with the the whole idea of populism. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they equate any sort of uh, populist outrage with you know pro Trump politics with. Uh, you know, racist or sexist or misogynistic sorts of discourse that you see in some corners of the right. They're not able to distinguish the fact that there are, you know, variants of populism. There Mm -hmm. are versions of populism that are very inclusive. And I think Joker tends more towards that side than, you know, any sort of right-wing populism. Because, you know, if you look carefully in the movie, there are people who are not white, Who are wearing those joker masks
0: yeah yeah he's he's unknowingly united
1: much of gotham and together in a weird way i think one thing the movie implies is the idea that maybe things can get so awful that people will unite you know despite all the divisions (laughs) yeah and if you're part of kind of the elite class if you're rich well off socially well connected the idea of a group of Social undesirables of losers uniting to demand conditions that might take away some of your power, might take away some of your money. Ooh, that's a little scary, Yeah, right? That's a a little uncomfortable. So no wonder you're going to have a backlash to it.
0: Right. Uh, I I suppose my closing thought on what Joker is is much like how uh, Breaking Bad is a what if of uh, what if we just take this really nice, normal guy... Um, and turn him into Scarface Joker is kind of the same way right. now What if we just took this guy Whose uh, things aren't really going well for him And make him absolutely insane Right. And it's nothing more than that
1: Yeah it's saying, like, what if you have all these conditions that are, some are widespread, some less so. Yeah. But what if they all kind of conflate in this one perfect storm yeah. of a character who just goes off the rails? Exactly. And, you know, does that
0: mean that, you know, you should be going insane? No. It sh- of course <laughs> it not. Um, but I, I I accept this movie for what it is in a vacuum. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, it's, it's still, uh, I think by the time the year is over, it will be in my top... Five, if not my top three favorite movies of the year.
1: Yeah, I I would say the same. And I would hope that Joker is kind of a turning point Mm. away from, you know, this onslaught of escapism. Yes. uh, Away from, you know, Disney and Marvel. I mean, I hope they continue to exist in one form, but I don't want them to be so dominant. I hope Joker opens the way for more socially relevant movies, more kind of populist movies, grittier movies, movies that are are taking a look at, at psychological and social and economic conditions that the vast majority of us are going through right now. It's very refreshing to see a movie that is challenging society. Well, yeah, and it's it's honestly really nice to see a bunch of Pretty shitty film reviewers yeah. get so upset about this movie. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the critics we've mentioned. When's the last time you wrote a meaningful review? Mm-hmm. You know, when's the last time you wrote a review of a film that actually mattered? Yeah, because you're getting paid for your job. We're not. Yeah, and all the other people out there online on YouTube on whatever they're not getting paid or they're getting va- paid very little. So what are you writing that means anything? Mm-hmm. And if you're not writing anything that means anything. Why are you complaining about people making meaningful content? Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's, uh, that's
0: always the critique of uh, critique, isn't <laughs> yeah, it, right? right. uh like, I'm the one making the stuff. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah, man. Um, I, I love this movie. And like, like you said, I want to I wanna see more of it. I want to yeah. see more of this type of thing absolutely yeah hey everybody if you like what you heard go ahead and subscribe uh, to our podcast you can get our podcast anywhere you get your favorite shows and
1: you can also find us on YouTube Tim how do you find us on YouTube go to now it's dark our channel on YouTube is the same name as our title everywhere else That's it. and uh, we try to put out video excerpts of some of our content here uh, if you enjoy having a, some visuals along with this discussion Bye.